0: Uh, Before the brother comes to preach this morning, I just want to read this as a reminder to us all. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ who died. Furthermore, who was also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, and who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen to that. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even death. And so even in death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. So praise God for that. Now, we have a privilege, the privilege this morning of having a gifted and a spirit-fitted brother to come and preach the word to us, Rick Gimple. He's a member of this church, and we are very thankful that he has this opportunity to exercise his gifting for our benefit and for the glory of Christ. So Rick, where are you, brother? There you are. I'm looking back in your normal spot, and you're not there. Yeah, yeah. So brother, would you please come up and uh, pray and deliver God's word to us this morning?
1: Mark 4, verse 35. obey him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious morning. We thank you for the freedoms we have in America to be able to congregate publicly and without fear. And we just thank you for this church. I thank you for the leadership of this church, and I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. What an honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. His disciples cried out, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And oftentimes his church today cries out the same. Do we not? Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? In spring of 1871 in Chicago... There was an energetic 43-year-old named Horatio Spafford who seemingly had everything going for him, happily married for a decade, four beautiful daughters, senior partner of a prominent law firm, friends, and supporters of the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. And he was well invested, newly invested, in promising Chicago real estate. The future could not look any brighter for Mr. Spafford. And then a storm hit. A fire to be exact, the great Chicago fire of of 1871, which wiped out nearly all of Spafford's newly acquired real estate investment. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Two years later, a family vacation to England was planned with the added benefit of seeing the Reverend Moody preach overseas. And unfortunately, Mr. Spafford was delayed in joining his family due to some urgent business matters, but he promised to meet them in England as soon as possible. And then a bigger storm hit. The ship carrying his family struck another boat, killing 226 passengers, including all four of the Spafford's children. His wife, Anna, survived and urgently sent her husband the telegram, saved alone, what shall I do? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Some of us in this room have suffered tremendously, and all of us will at some point. Nearly half of us will watch our spouse die, and the other half will have to go on and die without their support. Life brings storms, and our faith is shaken when it does, is it not? Well, believe it or not, this morning I want to encourage us. <laughs> Sounds like the feel-good sermon of the summer, doesn't it? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I do want to encourage us, first, first with some untruths, and then with some truths when facing the storms of life. But first, let's get into the text so we have a little bit of a reference point of what is happening with, with Jesus and this impending storm. <clears throat> Jesus is in or near Galilee, or I'm sorry, in Capernaum on, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. He's been teaching uh, pretty much all day uh, to large crowds that apparently were getting larger. So large, in fact, that he had to get into a boat so that the water acted as a natural amplification
0: <clears throat>
1: and at some point he breaks from the crowd with the 12 disciples and some others and goes back to peter's house per matthew to eat matthew 8 and luke 8 have parallel stories of this however when they get there jesus's mother or peter's mother-in-law uh, has a fever and is sick so she can't serve them so what does jesus do he heals her She's immediately well, and she goes on and makes them dinner. And during dinner, the disciples ask about the parables that he had earlier spoken about, and he patiently explains them. As the meal wraps up, the crowds begin to gather again in and around the house, and Jesus heals all who are sick and casts out demons. Finally, as the day comes to a climax... Jesus leaves the crowded house, tells the disciples he wants to cross over to the country of the Gerizines. Some follow him in other boats, so he can't totally get away from the the crowd. But Jesus goes in the back of his boat and immediately falls asleep. And we just read what happens. A violent windstorm arises and the ship begins to take on water. The disciples, you have to remember that most of them were veterans of the sea, a lot of them were fishermen, they start to panic. You know it's bad when the people who are used to the sea, used to running boats, start to panic. And without intervention, uh, there's no doubt that these boats will either be capsized and sink, and all the men will perish into the sea. And yet somehow, almost comically, Jesus is in the back of the boat, in the stern, sleeping comfortably. And this is our theme for today. The disciples again cry out, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We are about to die and you're asleep. Again, there is an allegorical parallel to the story that Mark or Peter, um, Peter probably dictated this to Mark, that's just an aside for You theologians, I know this church is very well versed in scripture, so. (laughs) Mark wants us to see this, this metaphorical storm. Various hardships and trials will no doubt come upon us and have come upon us. Sickness, financial difficulties, career setbacks, marriage and family problems. And as good as life is in 21st century America, we still cannot escape the storms, can we? So why are there storms? In our gospel story, Jesus as creator and sustainer of the universe could certainly have changed the weather pattern, correct? Wouldn't it have been a great climax to this story if there was a gentle breeze blowing on the disciples' backs and a starry night and they're singing hymns and recalling the day's events, wonderful. But it doesn't happen like that and in our own personal story Jesus as creator and sustainer of our lives could very easily change our situations he could heal sickness we know that he could have prevented that car accident he could have drawn our spouse and our children to him he could have granted us that big account or promotion at work but oftentimes it never happens we are forced into the storm like these disciples. Well, thankfully, we're not alone. Misery loves company, right? The Bible is chock full of stories of hardship and trials as we'll see later. So this morning, I want to reason with you on why. Why do we go through these storms? None of us are exempt. The longer you live, the more storms that you will endure. The hardships and disappointments of life will come So, why doesn't Christ, our Savior, prevent or intervene more quickly during these times? And again, we cry out, Where are you? Don't you care that I'm taking on water? Don't you care that I'm perishing? Well, first, let's unpack three untruths for the reasons for the storms, and then we will talk about five truths for the purpose of the storms of life. Eight points, which is probably five or six too many, so write small, but here we go. First, the untruths. first one, Jesus is indifferent and generally unconcerned. Jesus is indifferent and generally unconcerned. It simply is what it is. This, my friends, is what we call deism, and it was popular in the 18th century, right around the time of America's founding, and famous deists include Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, uh, John Adams. And basically, it holds that, yes, there is a supreme being, and there is a God who created the universe, but he no longer intervenes. He basically is the watchmaker. He makes the gears. He sets the springs. He winds it up, and it runs. And what happens, happens. There will be disease, accidental death, fortunes gained, and fortunes lost. Everything will play out according to those laws. If bitten by a poisonous snake, you're going to die. If you fall from a high enough height, gravity will kill you. If you try to drink water, inhale water, breathe water, you will drown. Fire will cause burns and potential death. These are just the rules of life, and accidents happen. God does not intervene and is seemingly unconcerned. Well, how do we know this is untrue? Again, back to our text, verse 39. He, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus, the God-man previously Inactive, indifferent, and asleep, asleep on a cushion, suddenly commands nature to rest, and it obeys him. It obeys him. Let's look at another scripture, Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to read um, down through 31. This is Jesus himself. He is concerned. Even down to the flowers and the birds and how much more those of us who are created in his very image. Well, let's move on to untruth number two. Jesus cares but is powerless to act. Jesus cares but he is powerless to act. He just simply does not have the ability to help. Just a couple weeks ago, I was, I own a, a small lawn service, and we were mowing along a fence line. And about 10, 15 feet from me, this little newborn fawn, not more than 10 pounds, size of a small dog, uh, scrambled up, all legs. I mean, it was just super awkward, scrambled up and ran along the other side of the fence line, probably 50 feet or so down the way, and tried to nestle in again into some taller grass. And you know, this mower is, is just going, you know, hundreds of thousands of RPMs, <laughs> very loud and noisy. So of course I ran as quick as I could. <laughs> so I stopped and um, I, 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 I tried to just nudge the mower a little closer to see what, what the thing would do. And it rounded the corner and went off into some woods. But I wanted, I really wanted it to help the poor thing. I mean, obviously it had probably just lost its mother in a car, uh, got struck by a car uh, either that night or that morning, and there's probably no chance of survival uh, during the night. That would be an easy meal for a coyote or a fox. And so I felt compassion. I wanted to to help the poor thing. I wanted to nurture it to health and bring it uh, back some security of life, but I was powerless to do so. I didn't have a chance to, I didn't have an opportunity to do it. I couldn't do it. Um, The thing ran into the woods and uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And in our gospel story this morning, Jesus seems initially powerless to act. He's sleeping, he's exhausted, totally powerless. How can he possibly make a storm of this magnitude dissipate? And likewise, again, when storms threaten our faith, and I'm not referring to the occasional time when you're at McDonald's and the soft serve machine is broken again or when, or when one of our favorite Minnesota sports teams loses a big game. Like that never happens, right? <laughs> no, I'm talking about life-threatening storms, the chronic or terminal illnesses, the death of a loved one, loss of purpose, or a marriage on the rocks. It seems as if God is asleep in our lives, does it not? We pray, of course we pray, and we believe that he is able to intervene, that he has the power to do so, but the storm the storm rages on. If he really cared, if he really understood, then surely surely he would help. Well, how do we know this is untrue? Again, our text reveals the answer. Jesus as the Son of God, the very second person in the Trinity, does indeed have the power to intervene. Verse 41, even the wind and the sea obey him. He creates the storm. He creates the storm and the havoc and destruction that it causes, the anxiety and fear that it produces, but, he also, but it also ceases. The storm ceases on his command. He orders it to stop. And it stops. There's a parallel passage of a tempest at sea in the Psalms, Psalm 107, starting at verse 23. And I like the New Living Translation's verbiage. I don't, I don't know if our computers can override that default, but <laughs> the New Living Translation's verbiage. Some went off to sea in ships, plying the trade routes of the world. They, too, observed the world's power in action, his impressive works on the deepest seas, He spoke, and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbor he is not powerless to act amen truth untruth number three Jesus doesn't care enough to be inconvenienced Jesus just simply doesn't care enough to be inconvenienced another short anecdotal story I was my wife and I were out with our neighbors a few years ago on a pontoon ride uh, out on Wiper lake and he uh, was recant, recalling a story just the week before about some stranded boaters uh, that he came across that were waving him down, wanting help. Nothing uh, urgent, but just out of gas or mechanical, wanted to tow into shore, ashore, I'm sure. And he waved them off. And he said, I don't help. Almost gleefully, he told us this story. I don't want to be bothered. And then he told us, he said, yeah, I just, I just don't want to get involved. I just generally don't help people. I don't want to be bothered. And so he wasn't. It's a beautiful Saturday night. He's out with his wife. He doesn't want to have to take the rest of the night or a good chunk of the night to tow these people into shore. It's too much of a hassle. Does Jesus care enough to be inconvenienced by our problems, to be roused from his slumber? Does directing the wind to stop and the sea to calm somehow deplete him of strength? like the woman who was hemorrhaging blood, and he's in a crowd and cries out, who touched me? Disciples are, what are you talking about, who touched me? People are pressing in on you from all directions. Someone touched me because I feel that power has gone out of me. It's kind of like one of those video games where you have the life source bar, and every time Jesus has to heal somebody, his life source bar is depleted a little bit. Is that what it's like? No. Calming the literal storm would just be too inconvenient and exhausting for him. After all, he went through a whole day doing just that thing. And calming your metaphorical storms of life are just they're just too much of a bother. Is that true? Well, Ezekiel 34, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, says otherwise, starting at verse 11. And notice notice all the active. Not passive, he's not a passive Jehovah, all the active verbiage from Jehovah God in this verse, or in this text. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them injustice." That doesn't sound like a very passive Savior, does it? Doesn't sound like a Savior who wants to be inconvenienced. No. No, we have an active Savior. We have an active Savior who does intervene in our affairs. Amen. Well, these untruths sometimes wreak havoc in our minds, don't they? They creep into our psyche and cause us to doubt God's character, doubt his love for us and his concern for us. But we know the Bible tells us differently, that he does love us and that he is concerned for us. But again, why the storms? Why not ongoing peace and tranquility? He creates the storms. He can certainly prevent the storms. He creates and commands every human cell. So why not stop the cancer cells from growing and forming in the first place? He commands Lazarus to come out of the grave and Ezekiel's dry bones to have life. So why allow our loved ones to abandon the faith that they were raised in? God joins two people together in marriage. So why so much discord and sometimes even hatred? Lord, don't you hear and answer our prayers? Don't you care? Don't you care that we are drowning, that we are perishing? These are all hard questions that we've asked at times and and there, there's no easy answer. Sometimes it's best not to, but that's not going to work out very well for a sermon. So, <laughs> so let me give five quick truths, uh, five quick reasons for the purpose of the storms of our lives. And I, I pray that they will be a strength to each and every one of us. Truth number one Jesus does care, and the storms reveal his character. And glory. Jesus cares, and the storms reveal his character and his glory. After Jesus calmed the storm in our text, the disciples were awestruck, and verse 41 filled with great fear. Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The storm was a vehicle or a means of revealing to his disciples who Jesus was. And it was a clear illustration of his divinity. They had just been through that all day long with his multiple healings. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He healed many that same day, cast out demons. And yet, here's another clear illustration of his power and of his glory. There's a saying that the light shines brightest when when the darkness is greatest. And if you went outside right now in the parking lot and turned on a flashlight, I don't care how fresh its batteries would be, if you turn that flashlight on, you would barely be able to see the beam of light. It would be eclipsed by the sun. But if you take that same flashlight in the dark of night and you are stranded somewhere in the middle of nowhere, that same flashlight is invaluable in finding your way to safety. The darker the night, The brighter the light, and God's character and glory is most revealed during times of great stress and hardship. Think about Abraham going up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac and instead a ram is provided as a substitute and Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide, and the Egyptians the Egyptian austerity toward the Hebrews grew so severe they commanded their newborn sons to be murdered. But what does God do? He places Moses right in the royal court to be raised and educated by the enemy, to use that knowledge to someday become Israel's savior. Likewise, Joseph, disowned by his brothers, left for dead, imprisoned, eventually becomes the world's savior, does he not? providing grain to a famished populace. And these illustrations point to the greatest hardship a person has ever endured in all human history, the passion of Jesus Christ. And yet nothing ever revealed God's character and glory more than that single event. So take comfort, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. You might not understand it now, and. Perhaps you never will understand it in this life. But your difficulties and your disappointments will someday reveal God's character and glory. So set your face like Flint to Jesus Christ. Truth number two, Jesus cares, and the storms reveal our weakness and reliance upon him. Jesus does care and the storms reveal our weakness and reliance upon him. There is a relevant story of a young girl who was aboard a cruise liner, and her father just happened to be the captain of the ship. And as night approached, passengers went to sleep, and the ship inadvertently ran into a violent storm. And everything was in chaos, as you can imagine. Everything being tossed about. Passengers uh, stumbled out of their, their beds and their births, sleeping berths, and everyone was quite panicked. A little girl got out of bed, said, what's the matter? Oh, we have gone into a terrible storm, young lady. And she calmly says, is my father still steering the ship? Being assured that he was indeed still in charge, in command. She softly walked back to her bed and quickly fell asleep. And during your storm, do you remember who's steering the ship? Do you rest in his guiding hand? Again, sail long enough and the storms will come, but Christ will guide you through every single one. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Recall Paul's ailment, his thorn in the, f- in the flesh, how he prayed multiple times to be relieved of this discomfort. And what was God's answer? God said, no, right? No. No, my, gra- my grace is sufficient. In fact, having your, you having this disability will actually increase my power and glory in your life. And what was Paul's response? Did he sulk? Did he pout? Was he morose? No, just the opposite. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we are physically and emotionally weak and worn out, our reliance on Christ is greatest. Some of you have military experience and you have gone through boot camp. And what is the primary reason for going through such an arduous process? To rely, to not rely on yourself, but to take command, take commands to not question authority, right? To do what you're told. And that's part of the purpose of trials, to learn to follow Christ's commands. You learn to trust him more and to question him less. Well, let's move on to number three. Jesus cares, and the storms help us to sympathize with others. Jesus cares, and the storms help us to sympathize with others. You know, our view of Christianity oftentimes mirrors our individualistic view as Americans, right? We view ourselves individually. In fact, we have that same uh, verbiage bleed into Christianity, right? We say we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that Christ died for my sins, that he's my savior, And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's quite accurate, and that's a wonderful part of of salvation. But we oftentimes neglect the importance of being part of the church body, of the community of believers, and that's so important. And let me just illustrate, if we can get this to work, Stacy, let me just illustrate this best with a couple of short video clips. You can go ahead and play the first one. That's good so here's here's a maybe preteen teen teen, uh, playing Handel's Messiah and it's wonderful right he's done a great job it's so great that he decided to post it on YouTube very proud of it and you should be it's wonderful now play the second clip for us Stacy all right that's good you get the idea right no matter how good you are individually you can never reach your full potential as a christian without being part of the body of the overall body of christ and paul says it well in first corinthians 12 that the members may have the same care for one another if one member suffers all suffer together if one member is honored All rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ. Your hardships, your storms give strength, believe it or not, give strength to the body. You women who have had difficulty in childbirth or nursing are valuable assets to women who are soon to be mothers, who are going to probably go through a lot of those same difficulties. There's no way that you could be such a support and help and sympathizer if you didn't have to go through that difficulty. And you who have been through certain health issues or career setbacks or marital problems or financial difficulties, are much better sympathizers and encouragers to those in the body now going through such difficulties. Your experience during, during the storm now helps others. It helps them navigate through their storms. And that's the strength of a healthy church body. Well, let's go on to truth number four. Jesus cares and the storms increase our sanctification. Jesus cares and the storms increase our sanctification. And by sanctification, I simply mean being molded into the moral image of Jesus Christ. Becoming more Christ-like. And it's not always an easy process, is it? Paul says in Galatians, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a war going on in each one of us. And that's the very word that Paul uses in in um, Romans 7 is war, but a true Christian, a real believer with saving faith, I'm not talking about cultural Christians or titular Christians in name only, I'm talking about true believers, a true Christian will persevere, will persevere through all trials and tribulations. Now, why? Because we have superhuman strength like Popeye with spinach? No. Not because of our strength, but because. He preserves us. He protects us. Matthew 7, 24 says, "'Everyone who hears these words of mine "'and does them will be like a wise man "'who built his house on the rock. "'And the rain fell, and the floods came, "'and the winds blew and beat on that house. "'But it did not fall, "'because it had been founded on the rock. "'And everyone who hears these words of mine "'and does not do them "'will be like a foolish man "'who built his house on the sand.'" And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Notice that both believers and non-believers go through the exact same storms. Heavy rains and floods, gale-forced winds for all. So don't come to Christianity thinking that it's going to be easy street. You will go through the same storms that your non-believing neighbor and friends go through. But the house founded on the rock of Christ withstands. It withstands it all. You know, most of us at one time or another, especially the men, I suppose, in this room have lifted weights. It's hard. They make them heavy, don't they? (laughs) But you know what's happening when you're actually lifting weights is you're actually creating microscopic tears in your muscle fibers, so that when you're done lifting, not only do you feel weaker, but you actually are weaker at that moment. But with rest and with protein intake, soon your body repairs itself, and those muscle fibers become used to uh, and more adept at uh, getting stronger and being able to handle that stress. And what happens? You get stronger, right? You get stronger. And as the body, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's better. But as the body repairs itself, those tears heal and cause the body to better adapt to the stimulus that caused the damage. And the muscles grow, and it's called hypertrophy. And spiritually, sanctification is somewhat like hypertrophy. Hardship, disappointments, and difficulties all cause a weakening of your flesh, it breaks the will of the self. The will of the flesh, it breaks down. And the Holy Spirit uses that weakness to increase spiritual strength and dependence on Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, amen. Finally, the last point, number five, the last truth, Jesus cares and the storms prepare us for eternity. Jesus does care and the storms prepare us for eternity. We must consistently remember that we are merely passing through as pilgrims into the promised land. And that's what we should long for. Yes, this journey is going to be full of trials. People will disappoint us, right? In fact, we will disappoint ourselves. But we are being molded for eternity, for something better. And life's storms, the forced course correction, so to speak, are meant for a purpose. Anyone have to deal with eradicating a patch of buckthorn? It's nasty stuff. And the older it is, the harder it is to get rid of. It, it just crowds out all native species and takes over, just runs over uh, everything else in its wake. And like buckthorn, the older our sins and bad habits are, the harder they are to eradicate. C.S. Lewis says it well, quote, quote, Now there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better, better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradual that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolutely hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true. Hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be, unquote. So the storms of this life are a pruning, so to speak, a sanding, a shapening for the life to come. God uses them in our lives to prepare us what he has in store for us. Hebrews chapter 11 illustrates this perfectly three different uh, pericpies of Scripture here that I want to read, uh, starting at verse 13. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And now drop down to verse 35, second half. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And then finally the climax in chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. Amen. Well, in conclusion this morning, I'd just like to circle back around to our story of Horatio Spafford If you recall, we left him. He had just received the telegram from his wife that said, all is lost, what shall I do? After receiving that telegram, he got on the next available ship to England. And on his journey, he was told by the captain that they were near the exact point of the accident. This is where the ship went down, and I'm sorry to say your daughters perished. And overcome with grief, he retired to his room and wrote two things. First, he wrote a brief letter to his sister's wife and said, We passed over the spot where she went down in mid ocean, the waters three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, my dear lambs. And the second thing he wrote was a hymn that we're all familiar with, a hymn that I think we're going to sing in conclusion today. It is well with my soul. And for 150 years, the lyrics to that song have been sucker and encouragement to countless believers. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Yes, emphatically yes, yes he does. He cares enough to go through it with you and he'll carry you through every storm of this life. And more importantly, More importantly, his love for you, dear believer, is so profoundly deep that he did not leave you alone in the ultimate storm of sin. Tim Keller, the author and pastor says, quote, Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away, unquote. And if he's willing to do that, if he's willing to pay that price for us, then rest assured that he will see us through to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this body of believers. I pray that you would guide and direct us for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: Now hear the benediction um, from Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter four, verses sixteen through eighteen. Paul says, "At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me, and He strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me." and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May you go in the peace and in the hope of that truth. Amen.